You know, I think we've gone past that era of the customer is always right, because guess what? Most of the time they're not. There's no reason why you can't stand firm and be confident in the fact that you're doing the right thing. And if they want to kick back, then tell them to bloody leave. Hospitality is an industry that many people come into and come out of. It's also an industry that people stay in for a long time. But longevity in hospitality can be tricky. Sometimes it seems like it's an industry built for the young, not for people who want to use their experience and stick around for forever. Today, we are talking to Alex Ross, who describes herself as a hospo lifer. She's been an absolute mainstay and innovator in the Melbourne bar scene. She's currently living in country Victoria. Welcome, Alex. So great to have you here on Dirty Linen. Thanks for having me, Danny. I'm thrilled to have you. So I did a call out last week um, on my Instagram and said, you know, a bit of an open invitation for people to get in touch if they thought they should be on the podcast. And you came very highly recommended from one of your friends. You have to talk to Alex. (laughs) Bless them all. (laughs) Um, Give us a little bit of backstory. Uh, You know, tell, tell me about your time in hospo. Uh, I've been in hospitality for close to 30 years now, um, showing my age, but I started in a cafe at 15 and, and I worked my way up and started managing a few places. And then one day mum and I decided to open a cocktail bar in Brunswick Street in Fitzroy, which, uh, which we had for nine years, um, it was at the very early stage of the cocktail boom. In fact, it hadn't actually quite happened at that point. And, and my bar, Ginger, was one of the bars that actually helped lead the charge in that. Um, and the rest is history, I guess. Well, yeah, Ginger was definitely one of those bars where, you know, cocktails were, I guess, they were culinary. You know, it was like you didn't just go there. You go, you went there for a bit of an adventure, a taste adventure, you know, adventure through different styles of alcohol, different flavour profiles. I mean, what, what do you think was happening in the bar scene at that time that you really helped push along? Well, we sort of decided it was time to to. Oh God, I, I say educate, but I find that is a little bit arrogant, but it was about educating our drinkers. Um, it was about, you know, getting rid of that crusty bottle of Advoca or that open bottle of Vermouth that had, had gone off on the shelf and, and use fresh ingredients and source good quality spirits. Um, and back in, what, 2001 when we opened, there, were, there weren't heaps of really great spirits on the market. You had your stock standards, but... There was so much stuff you couldn't get and we just watched that grow um, with demand um, as more and more bars started experimenting and researching. It was great. Is there a drink that you did there that you feel like, yep, this really speaks to our project? Oh, there was a few. <laughs> we, look, back back in the early ginger days, aside from our $8 martini, which, my God, if I could find one of those now, I'd be thrilled, um, <laughs> we... We probably used way too many ingredients. Actually, not probably. We definitely did. Because we were using so much fresh produce and we were so excited about it, um, you know, they they were the days of, of the, that early cocktail revolution before we became all about, you know, bringing back the classics and we would have, you know, 12 great ingredients in a drink, which is just ridiculous. But... Um, 
we had some fantastic drinks like uh, the ginger martini, of course. We had a sapphire cilantro, which was a, a gin and uh, coriander. What else was in it? Strawberries, all sorts of stuff. Um, basil boo. We had basil and passion fruit. and uh, Yeah, there was some wild and wacky stuff. I think, you know, you can sort of look back at cuisine of the early noughties as well and think people were probably using a few too many ingredients and it feels like, you know, over the past maybe 15 years, it's been a bit more about stripping things back and sort of putting produce at the centre. But I think in a way cocktails and food have been on a similar trajectory, but it was bars like Ginger that sort of put them on the level, I reckon. Yeah, I agree. And I, I look, you know, you can you can give a bit of kudos to some of those early sh- those chefs from that era as well. I think there were some fantastic things coming out of um, out of kitchens, and that definitely inspired all of us. Mm, yeah. What were the restaurants around at the time that in, that you remember loving and and being inspired by? Oh God, that's going to test my memory. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, you know, just the the staples, the classics, like your Chicholinas and, and Donovans and then, um, oh, yeah, look, you're really pushing it. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> tell, us, tell us how things progressed in bars because you didn't stop at Ginger. What, what sort of, what other things did you do? Uh, I went on to um, do some consultancy. I went, I went and ran uh, quite a few other people's bars. I, I worked for the Chalker Group. I worked the the Match Group, um, and did some general management uh, gigs. I sort of I stopped doing heaps of service. I was, I was you know, as, as much as I was hosting, I was it was more back of house and and management work. And then I went on to consult um, and helped others. Uh, build their bars and, and, and um, you know, grow from concept to design to project management. And then I went on and did some work with brands and, and spirits. I, uh, I got to work with some fantastic spirits. One of my favourites was uh, Tequila Tromba. Um, and I did that for about a year and a half and got to travel Australia and teach bartenders about good tequila. It was great. Yeah, goodness me. We certainly needed to learn about tequila. I still, even saying the word, I still do have a bit of a, you know, early 90s shudder um <laughs> like oh, maybe mid 90s I can't remember but you know that's the whole point that's the whole yeah that's it it's like I just can't remember good tequila in my early drinking days <laughs> there wasn't there really wasn't any available it was it was appalling what was on the market yeah we've definitely come a long way but it's interesting hearing you talk about you know moving out of that um front of house side of things and it makes me yeah think about you know, what I started this chat with, you know, about this whole idea of longevity in hospitality generally, but perhaps, you know, even more so in bars. I mean, what are the, what are the pathways? Was that something that you, did you really have to forge a path for yourself or did you feel like there were pathways sort of there in front of you? There was a bit of both. It was interesting in the ginger days, um, the whole concept of a brand ambassador was still in its in its infant stage. So um, as we moved through those years, we started seeing more and more bartenders being able to start travelling the world and do amazing things with big brands and big companies. Uh, for me personally, I, I, I struggled a little bit. Um, I, I've always been good at being a boss, not very good at being not a boss. <laughs> Um, and also being 
a woman, I, I struggled with that as well. It was it was a very male-heavy industry back then and um, I even struggled in my own bar to get female bartenders, you know. They're called bartenders now, great, but back then it was really, really hard to find career-orientated bartenders. And then when I moved into consulting, I struggled with, you know, after, you know, decades of experience trying to nail those gigs and, 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 and get those contracts where there were a lot of bartenders who had perhaps been bartending for not even half the time I had been, but they were just good at the gab and, and you know, they, they were male and they, they happened to get the job. And I, I don't know, I think as a, as a woman I'm not the best at selling myself. Um, I think modesty is one of those things that we just sort of tend to fall back into because it's easier than, you know, confronting people head on with it. Um, so I lost a lot of gigs that way to um, inexperience, uh, inexperienced bartenders. Yeah, that that's really telling, I reckon. And I, I'm sure that your experience or, you know, this idea of not being really gung-ho about selling yourself and putting yourself forward, I'm, you're definitely not unique in that. It's something that I think women are trained into and, yeah, and, and yeah, people are trained to see women in a certain way and to see women in certain roles and, yeah, leadership positions are often, yeah, women are often passed over for those those positions. Do you think that that's something, you know, that you could see in the broader hospitality industry? I mean, do you think it was particularly prevalent in the drinking side of things? I think in booze all up, I think whether it comes to, whether it's wine, we've seen a lot of that with, um, uh with uh, sommeliers and whatnot, um, spirits definitely. You'll look. You look even today at the the amount of brand ambassadors that are out there, and 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 I can tell you right now, the percentage of women in those roles is is still small. But I think that people are now actively pushing and looking for extra alternatives, and it seems to be that the those that are a little bit louder about what they believe in tend to tend to sort of get to the forefront. I mean, that's what they want with, with BAs. That's what they want with managers is people who will stand up and, and, and say things and there's less eye-rolling these days as there was back when I was banging the gong. Mm. It's really interesting, you know, like if you think about Australia's drinking culture, it's, you know, if you the, the sort of cliche, it's super blokey, you know, it's boys at the bar, it's, um, you know, very – it's about getting drunk. It's, it's, but I feel like surely as drinking culture becomes more sophisticated, there needs to be a diversity of voices that are talking about it, that are creating the, the drinks themselves. Uh, you know, and I mean the, the base spirits as well as the, as the mixed drinks. I mean, there's, feel, as we're talking about it, I just feel like there's actually, it's, there's an enormous territory that's yet to be explored properly. There really is. And you look at it when they, you know, even just people ordering, you know, cocktails, don't give me a girly drink or don't put it in a girly glass, um, all the way up to, you know, distillers. There are so many amazing women distilling booze these days, um, particularly in Australia, and it's 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 really exciting to see. We, we have an amazing palette as women traditionally. We, we understand those nuances and... It makes total sense that we're in the driving seat there creating mm. this stuff. Yeah. 
So interesting. So, Alex, tell us what's what's taken you out of Melbourne and, and to Benalla where you're living at the moment. Well, initially I moved up here. My my mum comes from this area, so I've got a heap of family up here. We, we were born and raised in the city, um, so I never lived in the country but would always sort of come up for holidays and whatnot. My mum moved up here about, I'd say, about eight years ago, I think, um, and I kept visiting and realising, you know, I was doing a lot of a lot of work in the city and I was stressed out and never had much time for myself or time just to breathe and let my shoulders, you know, stop wearing my shoulders these earrings. You know, I'd sort of every time I could, even if it was just for an overnight, I'd be pack the dogs up into the car and, and drive up here to just to take a breath and see some you know, nature and wildlife. Um, and what I saw when I was here was that there was some really great opportunities to open up some spaces. And I'm a, I'm a, a big, uh, a big foodie. I love to cook and I love to bake. And I came up with an idea, a business idea. I was going to open up a little cakery up here and I moved up here, uh, Six months into it, I was just about to sign a lease on this beautiful, beautiful old uh, butcher's shop, which I was going to turn into my little cakery. Um, and then I got diagnosed with breast cancer, of all things. Um, and my whole world stopped. Uh, and I spent a year in treatment um, and getting through all of that. And I can tell you right now, if I hadn't been here, if I was going through that in Melbourne, I would have absolutely lost my nanas and to go through something so big in a space in a in I, I always think about space it's just there's just heaps of space up here and to go through something as traumatic as that with this much space on offer and this much fresh air and and nature I honestly it was actually quite a positive experience and I got through that um and very fortunately, um, and then it was interesting because I'd spent that six, that twelve months flat on my butt, sort of getting through all of this. I'd had a chance to really get to know the town better, um, and realise that coming in with my Melbourne gung ho attitude really wasn't quite what Benalla needed, and um, and you know just getting back through all the nitty gritty bits when your body does all this strange stuff when you're going through chemo and radio. So I actually ended up working at the local pub. Um, the Northo, shout out to the Northo, they're amazing. Um, and just started bartending again. It was just great, just working in a country pub with a bunch of really great people. Um, it was really humbling, actually, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. Well, I really want to come back to the Northo because I'm also a fan of that great Benalla pub. But I'd love just also to going back to, you know, the great health challenge that you face. So many people in hospitality work in casual roles. They don't necessarily have um, heaps of sick leave, if any. Uh, they're probably, they're unlikely to be um, insured to the hilt. Um, it, tell me about that side of it. You know, what kind of, how how perilous can it be for some people to to face something really major like that and be a hospitality worker? It's really scary. Um, you know, you get you get funding from the government, you get a, a minimum or below minimum wage, let's be honest, um, and I know everyone's sort of experiencing it now with everything that's happening with COVID. Um, but what amazes me so much is that hospitality are the most generous people you've ever met and 
And, you know, they're the ones that tip when they're out and they're the ones that are usually living hand to mouth and on pretty rubbish wages a lot of the time. Um, and their shifts can come and go without notice, mostly because they're, they're casual or permanent part-time. And uh, yeah, my my industry just rallied behind me. It was the most incredible thing and I will forever be grateful for the amount of love and support and financial support um, that I received from, from these amazing people um, to get through that period. So aside from my family... And my friends, my hospitality friends, they there were fundraisers. There was a, a fantastic party at Black Pearl. They they had fundraisers in in other states of Australia, and they got me through it all. I would never have been able to do it without them. Uh, I mean, that's so amazing. Like I've got tears in my eyes thinking about that, but I also have really mixed feelings about it, Alex, because. Like, yes, the community is supportive, but as you say, they're also often the people that are really underpaid and really struggling and they'll give you their last dollar for sure. But structurally, isn't there a problem with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and that's something the government needs to answer for and that's something that the the, the bar owners or the, the restaurant owners sort of need to be looking at. Um, you know, if you've got a, a, a large venue that hires, you know, tens of people, 20, you know, 20 people and every single one of them is on um, casual work status. There's a real problem there with that work, with that business model, really, if you think about it. Um, And it's so, so, so common. Yeah. I mean, I can also see it from the business's point of view, like, you know, there's peaks and troughs in trade and you can't, you know, there's, it's a, those permanent, whether they're part-time or full-time employees that, you know, that's, it's a different kind of financial load for the business to carry. Um, I mean, I I can see it, I can see it from both sides or from all sides as more than two perspectives, but yeah, it just, it just, as much as it's super heartwarming for the community to rally around people that need it, it's, um, it's, you know, you, you know, you happen to be a great person, like a real people person. You've you've um, created lots of connections over the years. But, you know, someone who's, I don't know, like not <laughs> like hasn't made so many friends, they should still be looked after, right? Absolutely. And I think that's where, um, you, you know, what is it, JobKeeper now, but, you know, essentially payments and, and benefits and all of that sort of stuff really need to be assessed properly because none of that is livable, um, you know. And if you if, if something happens to you, like me, I, you know, I had, I, had a, I had car payments, I just signed a lease for a place that I was living in on my own, um, you know, you just and, – and so many people are going through these sort of – these sort of issues and and unseen issues, you know. Um, I can tell you right now, years ago on my superannuation, you've got income protection usually built in your superannuation and I stopped that years ago um, because it was costing me too much in my super. And, um, you know, my accountant sort of said to me, you know, you need to check on that, blah, blah, blah. And, my God, was I kicking myself when I checked it after I got diagnosed and realised that I didn't have that protection there because it was chewing into my my retirement fund, um, it's yeah. You, I think in this industry, and I think business owners are in the same position. You you're living for now. You're not living for the future. You're 
you're basically doing what you can do to get by. Yeah, that's right. I think maybe income protection, well, I don't know, but like, like employee, employers are required to pay super. I mean, it would be great if some kind of income protection was built into that. But then even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, shouldn't the government be picking that up? But then I'm also thinking, I don't know, like we're going to be paying for this pandemic for generations. I don't know. Obviously, um, we're not going to sort it all out in this conversation. But I, I think there's something in, you know, some kind of living wage and some kind of better social protections for people in hospitality um, that are, are going to be part of attracting people to the industry now and in the future because, as we also know, that is a big problem. Well, that's it. And, you, I mean, you think about it, it, it shouldn't be – where do you go with that? Do you raise the prices in your in your venue to – reflect a better wage for your staff and an easy turnover or do you, you know, I, I, I moved to Benalla and, and there were, you know, coffee over here was was not great when especially coming from a Melbourne mindset. Um, but to buy a coffee up here was like $4.50. It's now around about $5 for a standard coffee. In Melbourne, I was going back to Melbourne to do to do work and, you know, coffees were still sitting at three eighty, and I'm sitting there going, "How do you make money off this? You can't. It, that's cost price to sell your coffee, and it's as simple as that." And I think that you know, you change those little bits and pieces, and people follow suit. But then, you know, with COVID and everything, it's really interesting to see um, how busy. I mean, in regional, we've come in and out of lockdown a lot more than than you guys have in in Melbourne. But to watch how busy these venues are, these cafes and these restaurants and these pubs are the moment lockdown's finished. I know it's not reflected in the city, in Melbourne, in CBD when they come out, but, my God, there's money to be made out here and people are willing to spend. Um, So why not add those extra couple of bucks? I don't know. There's no real answer. Let's talk about the Nor, though, and, you know, the whole notion of a great country pub. Um, yeah, tell, give us a bit of a rundown on, on, on the Nor, though. Look, you know, it's funny when I, to come and work in the, in the country as opposed to super high standards for, for cocktail bars and whatnot and all the work that I've done elsewhere, it's amazing to be able to just sit back and worry about hospitality. You know, hospitality has always been my number one thing when it comes down to it. It doesn't matter how good you are making that drink or serving, you know, getting those those meals out to the table. If you're not doing it with warmth and, and generosity, you, you're not doing it. You're not being hospitable. And there's, there's, there's you know, and I think that's what I enjoyed about coming and working at the North, I was, it was just, was just all about welcoming people home and you walk into that place and you feel like you've come home. And that's what I used to expect of my staff at Ginger. You know, they need to walk in and they need to feel like they're supposed to be in that place and that they're a part of it. Um, and I'm getting, and I get that at the North though, and it's just been wonderful. It, it also helped to induce, introduce me to a community that I was a stranger to, you know. I've, I've made more connections by working at the pub than I have anywhere else here in Benalla, um, and I've got friends for life. How important has the pub been for um, Benalla through the lockdowns, through the, the openings and the closings? And, I mean, pubs are such, you know, they're so interwoven with the community and communities have been so disrupted. You know, what sort of role has it played? 
Well, it is. It's, it's like it's like it's it's home, you know. As soon as the lockdowns are over, I mean, that phone there, my God, I have never worked anywhere where the phones don't stop ringing like that. It did, used to drive me nuts and I've, there'd been nights when I actually, you know, full service, 7, 8 o'clock on a Friday night and we are rammed. I'm throwing that phone in the bin. I'm sorry, boss, I threw the phone in the bin multiple times. I was so over it. Um, it everyone is just gagging to get out and they're just there as soon as they can be. And we're also, it's an interesting thing with Benalla, we've actually got five pubs in town. One's been empty for almost a decade, which is an absolute crying shame. Um, one only opens when restrictions are completely lifted um, in full. Um, another one just changed hands and another one just operates a kitchen. They do some amazing food out of there. So the Northo is the only one that's really always there. As soon as lockdown's in, they're doing takeaway food. Um, they're serving all of their meals on real plates um, to, to stop that landfill um, and they're always open and then the moment lockdown ceases, they're open for trade again. And they, there's you know, Christmas Day is the only day of the year that they're not open. So to build that trade and to always be busy and always have patronage, they've done an amazing job. So hang on, tell me about this real plate thing. Does, do people bring a plate or does the pub give away a plate? Like how does that work? <laughs> it's a bit of both. Um, we In the beginning we scoured, um, I say we, they, I didn't do it. I was just helping with uh, with the other stuff. Um, they scoured all the up shops and just bought up as many plates as possible and everything goes out on a real plate covered in tinfoil. Um, and then we have trays at the front and the back of the pub where people can just drop their plates off at the end. So every now and again we have to do a, a cry out for more plates. It happens more frequently um, at the moment because uh, it's been very busy, which is fantastic. I figure the more we're crying for plates, the busier we are, so that's great. Um, so people just drop plates off for us and then we send them out again. It's, it's just yeah, That is so awesome. I just absolutely love it. It's just really speaks of country towns. So great. It's so good. Um, so, Alex, there's been a bit of talk um, from the Victorian Premier and, and other people about regional Victoria hopefully reopening soon, um, definitely before Melbourne, and then being a bit of a, a trial site for some um, new models of dining where, where we're welcoming vaccinated diners to eat inside. Has, has there been much talk about that? Look, it's it's going to be difficult. I think it'll work in the end just like the QR codes. There was so much kickback over the QR codes and there's still are. I mean, there's, there's your tinfoil hat wearers everywhere. There's a, we've got a, a township that has a, a large older demographic um, so some people aren't equipped with the right handsets or, or what not to use. So we're still in many places offering the old handwritten um, logins and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I think there'll be kickback and I think there'll be fighting, um, but I think eventually it'll just become part of what you do. It's it's just one of those things. We used to, I think one of the biggest things that used to bother me the every time we came out of lockdown um, was serving customers that just didn't want to accept that that was the way it was and they would treat you like you were the arsehole in that, you know. So whether it was having to check for postcodes, which we had to do frequently, 
um, to make sure that no one was coming from lockdown areas, whether it was checking in on QR codes, whether it was wearing masks when you weren't seated at your table. And it just got to the point where I, I build the Northo's website as well. That's that's all me. And I ended up putting a whole page of frequently asked questions on, which is only up when we're back open for trade. Um, but at the end of it, it was just like, can you just please be nice? <laughs> just be nice. Just be kind. You know, we're all doing our jobs and we're doing what we've been told to do and we're not the ones setting those limitations. We just have to do this to keep us all safe. Um, and mostly the community is happy with that because it keeps them safe too. And we are, you know, what are we, community of about, what, 14,000 people? And if we got one case here in Benalla, the whole town would get would go down. It would be so damaging. Um, yeah, and the fact that it's in Shepparton has been scary for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um it it is a lot it is a big burden that's placed on hospitality businesses but particularly you know the workers that are there dealing with customers face to face or you know even on or on the phone or whatever it is when you're talking to people about booking conditions it's um i suppose you you just need the systems and the and the communication and the, the rules to be as clear as possible so that everybody can sort of be on the same side working together towards being reopened and being safe. But it's it's a lot for businesses to deal with. It is. It's a massive burden, and you're looking at staff from from all walks of life. They might just be, you know, young people who are just working there for three hours a week, or they may be, you know, it, there is so much. There's so much to deal with and unless you're equipped and have been dealing with tricky customers for as long as I have, it's a lot. It's a lot. To, it was a lot for me to deal with. There were days when I just did not want to go to work because I was so anxious about the sort of, you know, fury I might cop from people. And then and then you've got people who just don't want to watch the news or they come in and say things like, oh, I forgot my phone or I don't have a phone or you know how amazing it is how <clears throat> how many people will say they don't have a phone. It's, it's complete bullshit but it, it's constant and it's just like don't, don't lie. It's not making life easy for any of us. Let's just get on with it. Or then there's those people who come in and they've been, you know, what do we have the other day? Someone came in from New South Wales when there was hard border lockdown and and oh yeah, it's it's up to ten a day. It's not even funny. And some people, someone said to the manager, "Oh, yeah, oh, we're we're not allowed here." What are you talking? Jamie's just turned around and said, "I don't believe that you're as stupid as that. I really don't believe you're as stupid as that. I think you know damn well, you know." And it's it's just that thing where don't. You firstly, you can't kid a kid, but just make life easier for the people who are on the front line in that way. It's just it's. And they are, but the hospitality people are on the front line as much as those in supermarkets, um, those patrolling borders. It's, it's, there is a lot of policing that needs to be done that really shouldn't be up to them because they haven't had years of training on for that. It's, yeah, well, uh-huh. but I mean, but who else is going to do it? And I'd say hospitality is more on the front line than any other industry because you're dealing with people who've got their masks off and their mouths open. Yeah. And, and, and the, you know, last year I was, I really struggled with it because I was still immunocompromised. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine now, but back then I was still fairly fresh out of treatment and I was 
terrified. <laughs> you know, and I started wearing a mask before people were told to wear masks and I used to cop dirty looks and now it's the opposite. If you don't wear one, you get the dirty looks. But it's really scary. What about vaccination among hospitality workers? Is you know, Are you finding that pe- pe- people are really keen to get themselves protected in that way? In my uh, list of connections, both online and face-to-face, yes, absolutely. And um, we've just had some, some numbers come out for the regional areas and Benalla is actually the most highly vaccinated, both on the, the single and the double doses. Um, That's so good. To, oh, it's so fantastic um, compared to, yeah, other other country towns. So we're really leading the way and, uh, you know, it's something that I'm so proud of and I'm proud that I'm one of those double vaccinated people, you know. I think it's, it's just it's it's great and I just want to see more and more people get vaccinated. Yeah, same. I'm very um, happy to be in that club as well. It'd be great to see like towns or, you know, counts, local government areas race one another to be the most vaccinated. Like we're not playing sport at the moment. Couldn't we do that? Yeah, why not? <laughs> A bit of healthy competition. Love it. Um, Alex, is there anything else, any other burning topics that you want to talk about? Um, I think one thing that I do want to talk about and I, and I, I talk about a lot with anyone I come up um, who I'm training and whatnot is, is that, that whole bartender burnout or that hospitality fatigue um, and looking after your body. Uh, you know, you, you go through your 20s and you're invincible and you do, you know, you do all the partying and you, you do all the things that aren't quite right for you and you sort of bounce back and as the years go on, the decades move on, it gets harder and harder. And I think that was something I really struggled with going back to the North, though, um, is just physically how demanding this job is of you and um, and how much you can do to actually help it. So it's not just about the the measures that you take after you've got your injuries or after you've got RSI or your back's screwed or your shoulder's out of whack or whatever it is, your feet are done. It's about trying to prevent those things from happening. So strengthening your core, doing things like yoga um, and making sure that inwards you're strong. You know, I, I, I've seen and I've trained a lot of a lot of women to shake, you know, shake cocktail cans and we tend to do it over our shoulder like the guys do, but our our body structure isn't like that. Our shoulders and our arms aren't aren't made in that way. So I'm always about grounding, getting your feet nice and solid on the floor, holding in your core and push-pulling a can in front of you rather than above your head because um, I can tell you right now I've got RSI in my right shoulder from shaking cans for all those years. Um, and if I can help somebody to prevent that sort of industry in order to continue in an industry I love they love and I love and I'm all for it I love that that I mean even as you're saying that I'm picturing myself in that position and yeah it just feels much better to be yeah just like engage my core and um shake it in front of me yeah and uh, don't get me wrong I am nowhere near the healthiest person ever and I just can't do that anymore but it's um it's so important it's so so, and the right shoes my god getting the right shoes it's not about look I go to the old there's there's a um a a fantastic podiatry shop down the road and 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 the shoes are daggy and whatnot but I tell you what I'll spend that two hundred dollars on a pair of daggy shoes that'll last me so much longer and have me 
less, you know, I used to fall asleep and not be able to sleep because my feet were hurting so much. Wow. Um, and it's all about having the right tools as much as it's about having the right jigger and the right the right Toby tins. It's, it's just as much what you're wearing as well. Love it. And what about mindset or, you know, looking after your mental health? I think that it's all right. You know, I think we've gone past that era of the customer is always right because guess what? Most of the time they're not. And I'm not saying that to be inhospitable because I still believe in, you know, using the right messaging to get across that perhaps there's another way they could look at things. Um, I think that being able to stand strong, particularly now with the extra challenges we have thrown at us, you have every right to either turn around and say, you know, it's not okay for you to, to speak to me like that or I disagree with you and this is what needs to happen in order for you to stay on the premises. Like, there's no reason why you can't stand firm um, and be confident in the fact that you're doing the right thing and if they want to kick back, then tell them to bloody leave. Uh, that's the best thing about working at the Northern is that, the the managers will just turn around and just go, no, get out. If you're going to actually abuse my staff or you're not going to follow the rules, then you have to go. Um, and I think that's, I think it's okay to stand up for yourself. I think you don't always have to bow down and go, you know, oh, I'm sorry, ma'am, or I'm sorry, sir, or I'm sorry about this and let me fix that for you. It's like, well, we've we've done this and we've done this and we've done this and you're still not happy. There's not much else I can do. Yeah, I think... I think you're so right. I read a great article about this recently and I'll put it in the show notes. Um, it's basically about it's we are the era of killing the customer with kindness is over and it's time to stand up for ourselves in hospitality. But, I mean, I think what is so important, like, you know, you've got experience and confidence to draw those lines. Some other, you know, less experienced people may not, but they definitely need the support of the managers and the owners to stand up to customers that really just, you know, have gone too far. I think sometimes, um, you know, a staff member might be given a hard time by a customer and if they can't sort it out, then they're next given a hard time by the manager or the owner. So I think it really needs to be uh, those lines need to be able to be drawn with confidence by the person who's on the front line, knowing that they're going to be have you know have the backup of of the people who are senior to them. Absolutely, I work for I've I've stepped out of the physical side of hospitality, and I now work for a, a not for profit called Tomorrow Today here in Benalla, and and my work with Tomorrow Today revolves around young people, but particularly uh, teens and those who are transitioning either into work or university um, and it's it's just such a fantastic job and I love it so much but one of the programs I've just finished um, is aimed about it's aimed at getting um, young people ready for work it's called great start to work and I was able we'd take them on workplace visits we'd gone introduce them to business owners around Benalla and whatnot, and because of my love for hospitality and my my connection with the Northo, I, I took my group to the Northo, and I said to I said to my group, I think everyone in, in the world needs to spend six months in hospitality at the very early stages in their life because I think that that sets you up with a, 
a resilience and a confidence that you and, and, and an experience that you're never going to get anywhere else. You get to see the absolute best and the absolute worst of people and you learn how to deal with that. And those sort of life skills will set you up forever. Um, and I just think that's so important. I, I don't, you know, you can tell those who haven't done customer service and haven't, you know, haven't had to worry about that, the people who treat you like second-class citizens. And I think that's been the great equaliser with COVID is that, all of a sudden, we are wanted, you know, people want and desire and miss hospitality and they miss venues and they miss eating out. And and all of a sudden, it's so important that we are looked after and these people are, are kept in their jobs and they're, you know, there's a gratitude that does come with it. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot to be said about working in this industry. Yeah, definitely. Well, I really hope that as things reopen um, again, um, that people are more grateful than they are, I suppose, like stressed and demanding because that's also been the experience of, of people as, you know, customers have been some of, you know, most people I think are super grateful and just value hospitality more than ever. ever. But then there are those who um, I guess feel some, for some reason feel even more entitled uh, as things reopen and they, you know, get the get the meals out that they, that they think they deserve. Um, but, yeah, no. Well, Alex, I feel like we could talk for hours. There's so much to so much, so many topics and such a rich discussion. You've got such a wealth of experience and such a great perspective on the industry. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and I know a lot of people are going to get so much from what you've said today on Dirty Linen. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. It's been really great. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is...